Blog Talk Radio. This episode of Kimberly's Intentional Moment is brought to you by the Seiken Network on Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night for those of you across the globe. I am so fortunate to have one of my teachers, Salvatore Zambito, here again. Welcome, Salvatore. Always fun to be with you, Kimberly. It really is. And uh, thanks for being patient with some of our technical difficulties we've been having. Um, Today, we are going to talk about... Uh, reaction versus response. And um, so to the listeners out there, we've talked about this before on my show. This time I'd like to delve into it a little deeper. It's always been something that's kind of been on the outskirts of, of the show and something that I bring in now and again. But I'd like to go into it a little deeper and get um, some feedback or some support from Salvatore and the Yoga Sutra. And before we get started, I just want to recap a little bit um, on what we've been doing so that those of you that are listening to this show maybe for the first time um, have an idea of what we've been discussing over four shows. This is our fourth show with Salvatore. Um, First, we discussed what is yoga. Then we discussed why is yoga. And in the last show, we discussed whether or not yoga is a religion. And um, all of our shows, uh, Salvatore and I often are, are, are chuckling because we realize that you can't possibly answer those questions in one show and you could revisit it over and over and over again and it would change because every moment is new. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, in the last show, though, Is It a Religion, we talked about um, the difference between yes or no and yes and no. And in all three shows, we've touched on, you know, cultural nature. Language is cultural, the fact that wherever you were born and raised and the language that you were brought up in, there are just certain assumptions that are made one way or another, and it's neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. And I thought one of the things we might do to just begin, Salvatore, is let's define, or or I would like to ask you, how would you define the difference between reaction and response? And I know that you generally, or I've heard you say something, or a an adjective to describe both. I think you said authentic response before, and I couldn't remember what you said about reaction. I think the word that you're looking for is robotic. Ah. And your question sounds simple, but to take it from a yogic standpoint, there's actually a little complexity to it. So I'm going to go back a couple of steps to answer your question. Great. Where I always start in my classes, I start a lot of these shows, is by defining yoga itself. And in the Western world, 
typically people will be writing or talking and say that yoga comes from the root huge and that the root huge means union. And that's correct as far as it goes. If we go into Sanskrit in a more disciplined way, there's a book called the Datupada that lists all of the verb roots in Sanskrit. And they actually have three definitions for huge. One of them is control. One of them is union. And the third one is samadhi, which is a state of consciousness. If we go into the Yoga Sutra, the second sutra defines yoga. The words are yogash chitavriti nivodaha. Yoga is that state of consciousness where all vibration in the energy field we call the mind comes to complete stillness. Now, this is a definition of samadhi. One of the, the ancient commentaries written on yoga makes a statement, yoga samadhiha, and that indithaha is the grammatical equivalent of an equal sign. So what the great commentator Vyasa was saying, yoga equals samadhi. And then in the second sutra, Patanjali is defining it as a state of consciousness for all vibration, the energy field we call the mind comes to stillness. Yeah. Yes. The next yeah. sutra, and I'm not going to go into the Sanskrit, I'll just give you the English for the next two, but the next sutra, the third sutra says... When in this state of consciousness, when in this stillness, the person knows themselves as they are in reality. It's called svarupa, the true self. So this svarupa, this true self, is this nirodha, this complete stillness in the energy field we call the mind. Now, I might just point out here that a number of languages like Sanskrit and Aramaic and Greek have a word for this state of consciousness. The word in Greek was enstasy, and when that word was translated into English in the New Testament, it was translated as the peace that passeth all understanding, because we don't have a word in English for that state of consciousness. So the understanding that we have in the Yoga Sutra is that this enstasy, this samadhi, this peace that passeth all understanding is our true nature. So yes. when we're not in that space, something else is going on. And this is where the fourth sutra says, at other times, the word for that is itaratra, at other times people remain identified with these vibrations. So yes. this vibration would be, you are identified with your femaleness. I am identified with my maleness. That would be vritti sarupya. You and I are identified with our Americanness. We're identified with the age of our bodies. We're identified with our activities. Every thought or feeling that you have is a characteristic vibration in this energy field we call the mind. Yeah. <clears throat> so we have a situation where we have this identification. And until we're ready to let it go, we tend to defend it. Yes, now, we do. <laughs> yes. This is, in fact, I think if we look at the day-to-day -day news, it's 
undeniable that we are all defending various identifications. Yes. So Patanjali makes various lists of characteristic obstruction vibrations in this energy field we call the mind that keep us from experiencing that peace. The core of them are called the kleshas. These are the root obstructions to samadhi. And he lists five of them. But I just want to focus on the fifth of the five, which is abhinavesha, may I not cease to be, or basically fear of physical death. So as long as we believe that we are the physical body, then we're going to have some characteristics of identification that create ongoing problems. So at this moment, I don't particularly identify myself as my body itself. I'm not my clothes. I'm not my house. I'm not my car. I'm not my body. I'm wearing it. And I'm not telling anyone they have to believe that. I'm just giving you my experience. Right. But when we believe that we are the body, that that's who we are, then this leads to certain characteristic difficulties. And Patunkley makes another list where he's suggesting certain practices that help to bring these vibrations in the energy field we call the mind to stillness. And remember, I'm still talking about action-reaction here. It's starting kind of far away, but I'm moving to the center. Yep. And I, I, I see that. I mean, I can, I, can, I can see that you're on a road to where we're, where we're going. And I think it is important to um, reiterate some of the things we've talked about before because I really don't think we can hear them enough. Well, it's part of the building of the, of the logic tree. That's right. So, potentially, lists when he says there are eight limbs or eight steps to achieving the samadhi, all of the eight limbs of yoga. The very first step he calls the yamas, and roughly they're called commands, but they're a little bit different from we, how we understand generally the Ten Commandments. So the five yamas start with ahimsa, that is without harm. Yeah. Satya, <clears throat> satya which is truthfulness. Asneya, without theft. Brahmacharya, which is a little challenging to translate because it literally means walking in God. But it, um, the cultural translation here can be celibacy or proper sexual ethics. And okay. then the fifth of the yamas is aparigraha, without greed. So the misunderstanding that I get with many students, even yoga teachers with years of experience, is that these are social commands to be a nice person. And <laughs> that yogis really don't care about being nice people. They have a whole different set of issues on hand. So 
what we're looking at here is how does Yama, these five elements, support the issue of a mind that's at peace. So if we look at the correction that the Yamas are suggesting, ahimsa, without harm, yes, that corrects a harmful wave action in your mind. So right. You know, the opposite of that is dishonesty, asteya, thieving. The opposite of brahmacharya, as I'm laying it out here, is uh, lack of sexual discipline. The opposite would be greed. So what yeah. we have here is a picture of a human being who is a violent, dishonest, thieving, rapacious greedhead, which frankly comes pretty close to defining most humans. Yeah, we certainly have our moments, don't we? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to say that I've never violated any of those. I, I know I but, can't process here, though, is not about judgment. The process here is about self-knowledge. And the process that he's laying out here, when he talks about ahimsa, he's not talking about moving into denial about our tendency to physical, verbal, mental, emotional harm. But he's talking about becoming honest with it, resolving it, and transcending the problem because here is the key. You are not going to go into the peace, the passive all understanding, while you have a mass of deep, suppressed, denied violence in your heart and mind. Right. So when we look at harmfulness, we look at dishonesty, we look at DV, we look at rapacious sexuality, we look at greed what we are looking at is really gross, intense vibratory actions that are completely contrary to yoga. Yep. And Patanjali lays out a way of dealing with that in another sutra. And I'm going to rephrase it because he's writing basically for swans. He's not really writing for students. The Yoga Sutra was not meant for students. It was meant for teachers at a fairly high level. But now it's gotten out. The Yoga Sutra used to only be transmitted verbally. It was only written down fairly recently. So the way to deal with issues, say, of harmfulness is not to deny it. When that comes up, The practice that I recommend is that we stop, we witness it, we completely own it, and then we put an opposing vibration in. So it is um, critical not to use yoga techniques as a process of suppression. Opposing vibration. I, I thank you for that because um, one of the things that I've often taught in classes, um, when in doubt, cultivate the opposite. You know, and but you have to stop first. You have to know what it is. 
so I really appreciate yeah. you saying um, for myself and and the listeners out there again. You know, let's just just stop. Uh, only thing I would add is take a deep breath. That's fine. Or two or That's three. <laughs> and the I love that. Witness it and own it. Part of the difficulty in America right now, and I think in the English-speaking world generally, is that we live in such highly judgmental societies that, and even secular, I'm not just talking about religious societies, right. that it takes some real practice to be able to own those things without a load of self-judgment. Oh, yeah. Without self-rejection. So this becomes complex. So when yes. people come to me and, and they're getting personal counseling in these matters, we have to go through a process where we realize that for a while, if we find these kinds of negative, negative so-called negativities in us, that it's just we have to watch ourselves judging ourselves. Mm-hmm. Then watch ourselves judging ourselves about judging ourselves. That's right. It can take a while to sort this out. It requires a lot of patience. Well, and and patience is very, it's difficult when you feel in your day-to-day life that you're being pulled in a million different directions and you already know you're not going to get it all done and we know you shouldn't multitask, but you know you're doing it anyway. And, you know, and you're right. It's, it's, It's a practice. I mean, that's why... You know, the names of the show, when I talk about them, it's the practice. It's something that is done all the time every day. Another thing I add, you know, with my students and friends and family, you know, whoever's willing to discuss, um, is that we, when we're, in the, when we're in a practice, it's ongoing. So, you know, we've talked in previous shows, um, not only with you, but also when I've been on my own about... You know, yoga is every day all the time. This is not, you know, it's not standing on your head for 10 breaths and then we call it a day. You know, it's it's all the time. And and I believe you and I have had many discussions on, um, and I believe I heard you say that uh, yoga, how yoga was once taught, maybe still is in India. I'm not sure if I'm remembering it correctly. You learn the yamas and the niyamas First, am I correct? Like before asana? Oh, way before. But it would be done not so much in a class situation. It's right. in a living situation. Yeah. Now, what I would add to your, what you're saying about practice is that today's practice, when it becomes integrated, becomes tomorrow's state of consciousness. Yeah. So what... I'm trying to say here is that even though some of these uh, practices we're talking about can be very challenging, first of all, progress can be very quick. But the reason that the real masters give students new practices is because the old practice became integrated, became a state of consciousness, and then they are given uh, something else to work on. There's a tendency in Western yogis to have a certain amount of greed for knowledge, 
and practices. Mm -hmm. In the ancient traditions, you, if you could get a master, which frankly, very few people were allowed to study yoga in the ancient tradition, very few. This was considered to be something that occurred at the end of a very long period of development, multi-incarnation. And, and, and that was one of the assumptions that you talked about, that Patanjali, in, when, in writing the Yoga Sutra down, I believe I heard you say um, that the assumption was made that we already knew there were multiple incarnations. His assumption is yeah. multiple incarnations. He uses the term okay. rebirth, I believe, four times in the Yoga Sutra. Okay. Okay. Now, nobody has to believe that. I'm just telling you the right. assumption here. Right, right. Um, but what would happen if you could get a master would be that you might get a breathing exercise to do for the rest of your life. Right. This would be it. You might get a physical motion. You might be given a ritual, say a morning bathing ritual to do. But from the standpoint of Western English-speaking yogis in the U.S., Britain, Australia, these would be so simple that it looks like nothing's happening at all. Yeah. And therefore, so, extremely frustrating and, and something difficult to s stick to on a regular basis. Understand, too, I'm not being judgmental here. I'm being descriptive. Yes. I have and I, teaching, I'm glad you said that. I have been teaching yoga for probably 15 years when I met an actual Indian master. And I was teaching yoga at the university level at Boise State. And as I sat with this man, and he was explaining the actual cultural context of yoga from inside the Vedic civilization, because he may be the last of the, you know, toward the end of, you know, his family kept the Vedic tradition together. The British did their best to destroy the Vedic civilization. They actually did it. Um, but he was able to explain the cultural context of yoga. And I was stunned to realize that I knew nearly nothing. And most of what I thought I knew was an error. And so a great deal of what I'm trying to do here, particularly for new students, is that they don't have to go through the years of misunderstanding that I have. Thank and you. I learned, and I learned in a really a wonderful tradition, Shivananda, with Vishnu Devananda. And they did their very best to bring it out in the 60s, but the teachers at that time felt very uh, tied up. They felt very restrained on what they could put out about the context of it in Western society. They were very careful. Yeah. Because it's such a foreign set of understandings that go into yoga that there was not 
the only real area of cultural bridging was the physical fitness element. And if people will do asana in a fairly traditional situation, there will be a relaxation that occurs and is deeply important and it's wonderful. And I, I don't want to sell my time not giving it the value. The situation being that the Western world being so much younger, even though we're 2,000 years old, we're adolescents culturally. And yep. as uh, Dr. Arya said to me, young people and young cultures are physical and materialistic and it's completely appropriate. So in the Western world, the start has been different than it would be in India. So right. here we begin with physical processes where there they began with heart-centered energetic processes. Right. And again, we're coming back to that. It's it, we're not saying that it's not good or bad. It's not an or. It's not an or thing no. in, at all. It's just here's what it is. It's just what it is. It's have just to start what it is. From where we are, and that's where I started from. I don't want it to sound like I started from uh, a yama understanding. I did. Right. But the issues of the yamas and the issues of Chita Prasadanam, the pleasant mind, were not situations in India that people necessarily had to have a master to study because it was so integrated into the society. And I don't really want to go into that right now because we're, we're yeah. focusing on issues of uh, reaction and response. And yes. what we have when we're dealing with the uh, ayamas, the, the, those vibrations that go against the yamas, right. are sets of identifications that we defend. Yes. Now, as long as I have certain of these, I am a, an American, I am a Hindu, I am this, I am that, I'm coming to you from a set of conditioned responses. These conditioned responses can be cultural. They can be national. They can be religious. They can, come, they can be family. We have family conditioning. Yeah, we do. So when somebody presents something and our reaction is immediate, it is probably coming from that condition. Especially, well, I was about to say something. I'm going to step back a couple of steps back. Um, for many hundreds of years, there was a Sufi monastery in Afghanistan Oh, I'm so glad and, you're bringing this up. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I hope that it's still there, and I hope that they're safe. Yeah. But this monastery, it was very hard to get into it. It was very demanding. But if you could get into it, and, and only men were accepted, but if a man could get into it as an acolyte, 
they were immediately given a sign to wear around their neck, and they had to wear this sign in public at all times. And this sign said, I am an automaton. I am a robot. From the moment the man put that sign around his neck, anybody in the monastery could then challenge that man whenever he took an action, whenever he said a word. Anything that he did could then be challenged on the basis of when you did that, when you said that, were you coming from your robot or were you coming from your authentic self? Yeah. Now, I heard this story during a period when I was staying with and studying at the Osho Ashram and Osho actually put this into play. I don't remember if it was one week or one month but he told the story of this monastery, and then as we were going out, we all got a little sign to put around our necks and said, I am a robot. So for the first what a, two what two an days, amazing practice. Oh, let me tell you. Oh, let me tell you. I'd say for the first two days, people were constantly calling each other on robotic action. The third day, it was still happening, but it was a lot less. On the fourth or fifth day, the whole ashram went into silence. On the fourth day? The fourth or fifth day. Of the, the wow, ashram. that's that's pretty great. Well, there hit a certain point where the question really was, are you challenging my robot from your robot or from your authentic self? Right. At that point, everybody had to shut up and look at their own stuff. <laughs> at about the fourth or fifth day, everybody shut up and started looking inside. People were witnessing what they were doing. Why am I getting a cup of tea right now? Why am I trying to get acquainted with this woman? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Is put in this huge inquiry, huge self-observation. And from what I found out later, somewhere around the sixth or seventh day, the self-observation and self-inquiry into the authenticity of thought and action and word had gone into the sleep process. with no particular instruction in that direction, people automatically, at least the people I talked to, the majority of them went spontaneously into yoga nidra. Even their dreams were being put under this observation of authenticity. That is a profound practice. What a what an incredible shift. 
at that point, Kimberly, if you're going to be authentic in that, you have to get real with yourself about tendencies, say, uh, I'm pulling some things out here, to gossip. Right. Where is this coming from? Tendencies to inappropriate acquisition of various sorts. We have to get real about our thieving nature. It's often like how I've described when you when you choose to be in practice. So sometimes, depending on the situation that I'm in, I may not use the word yoga, which is appropriate with that situation. So the practice, when you've chosen to be on that 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 path, if you will, and it's something that you are that you feel strongly about and intentional about, you will you will find that energetically the universe, if you will, helps keep you on the path. So when you are falling off or when you are being, you know, dishonest with yourself, you have, it's almost, I guess I'm, I'm talking from my experience right now, is it, you, your, your, your attention goes to, wow, you're being dishonest about this, Kimberly, and you know it. And I I think that becomes a practice in and of itself. And so that brings all of these, if we take all of the yamas, and we take that witnessing that I'm talking about, I I gave you Uh an extreme example here with what Osho laid out. Osho, I mean, this is obviously an incredible luxury to be able to spend a period of time with a master who then takes you into a situation where the only thing you have to do for a certain period of time is get real with your inauthenticity, which leads to becoming authentic, at least at a deeper level. So if, if I think I'm a man, and my master says to me, but you are not a man. And I have this negative, well, of course I'm a man. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. And then the master says, no, 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 you misunderstand. You are not a man. You are not a woman. You are not an American. You are not your body. You were never born. You will never die. You are eternal. You have come here to visit us for You are Purusha. You are beyond all time and space. See, I find that freeing. It is. However, comes with responsibility. The reaction is based on social conditioning. Yeah. What do you mean I'm not a man? Right. I'm a real man. Of course I am. So 
what we're constantly dealing with is self-definitions. And if we think we are the body, to take an extreme example, then we have certain defensiveness around that. Um, all of the yamas lay out certain areas of reaction for us. All of these reactions keep us from being in the peace of passive all understanding. So, but that's our social condition. In order to be authentic here, yeah, it requires really going against the stream of social conditions, cultural conditions. Yeah, and that can feel really quite um, overwhelming. Well, even more than that, Kimberly, is dangerous. Well, you're right. Yeah. It, yes, it is. When you, when you take the extremes of it, when you get the mm-hmm. really, really authentic guys, the ones who are there and won't give an inch, there's a reason we poisoned Socrates. There's a reason we hung Jesus on a cross. There's a reason we cut the hands and feet off of Mount Jeral Hillel. There's a reason we burned Mara. There's a reason we stoned Mahavira and poisoned the Buddha. Humanity cannot tolerate that much integrity. Ouch. When we face men and women who won't give an inch in their authenticity, we kill them. when they operate in public like that. Mm-hmm. So there is a place within us where we know that if we move into that level of authenticity, if we move into that level of samadhi, into that level of peace that passes all understanding, and we're really there, Kimberly. Yeah. That the life of this body may be in danger. I'm not talking yoga here. I'm, I mean, this is not yoga. This is... This I know. Is you're, I know, but you're uncovering but something that makes a lot of sense as to why, you know, you gloss over or you look the other way or, you know, turn the other cheek. We don't turn the other cheek very well. Now, that no. one... Thank you. Beautiful. There's an example of reaction versus response. Yeah. That was Yeshua, uh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. They become aware and respond. Reaction to hit back is reaction. That's your robot. Become aware and withdraw from the conflict. Turn the other cheek. Yep. Put that person up against their stuff. So there's an example of a master talking about the between reaction and response. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I'll have to tell you, I cannot tell you 
that in every circumstance I would turn the other cheek. I understand. I just can't say that we have to use some judgment in those matters. Yep. Well, because there is a there is a time where reaction can be important. Well, if you're being attacked by a dog, right, you don't have a lot of time. That's a true emergency. A true emergency. That's right. That's right. And I would call that like a survival reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no anger involved. No, no. Simply get myself out of danger. So in a multitude of ways, if we go back to the very first word in the Yoga Sutra, atta, now, this very moment, there's a, a number of definitions to it. But if we're going to be completely grounded in this moment, be here now, what a great great book, what a great title, Be Here Now. But we have huge social structures that oppose being here now. So to be in this very moment, we have to be stepping to some extent. We have to become aware of and step aside from the robotic conditions that ripple from the cultural to the family. Mm-hmm. So I give, I start all of my meditations now with an Atta centering. I'll give it to you. Please. Withdraw your mind from times that have gone by and from times yet to come. Allow your attention to be absorbed in this moment and in no other. Withdraw your mind from places where you have been, from places you will go. Allow your attention to be absorbed in this place and in no other. Withdraw your mind from external relationships, activities, and objects. Allow your attention to be absorbed in the space bound by your skin and the rhythm of your breath and in no other thing. I recommend that my students do that two or three hundred times a day. (laughs) I'm speaking literally. I know. That is a great recommendation. If you do this two or three hundred times a day, in under two weeks, it will become the reflective or the uh, reflexive and say the reflex default of where this energy field we call the mind will go. There will come a point in time where in order to think about the past, you'll have to make an intention to think about the past. To think about the future will require intention because there's a part 
of you that runs your mind. Yeah. If there wasn't, Kimberly, we could never say, I changed my mind. Who changed yeah. what? If the mind was running things, we could never change the topic. You could never say, I want, can we change the topic? I want to talk about something else. So there's something in us that I think some schools of psychotherapy call the self-observant ego. So you find that place within you and then withdraw your mind from times that have gone by and times yet to come. And in a very short time, it doesn't take very long to just do this two or three hundred times a day. There will come a time where the mind rests in this very moment, and we come to find that that random thinking, that random train of thought, takes huge amounts of energy. Yes, it sure does. The taste that I have had of Samadhi Kimberly is that these states of enlightenment are so easy. Being in a state of enlightenment is not work. It's the ultimate relaxation. Being in the state of ego separation and defense and reaction, this is work. I don't even know how we do it. It is exhausting. So what is being suggested by these various masters, remember, Jesus said, Behold the lilies of the field. They do not toil, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. He, time and again, advised people to relax. Take no concern for the morrow. My burden is light. Time and again, this great Asian master advised us to relax, to have confidence. Your Father in Heaven watches every sparrow. He doesn't love you. Have faith. Relax. I go to him because he's the most commonly known in the West. Right. They say the same thing. Right. And this is relaxing while at the same time Knowing that um, you know that that we have a tendency toward in in our in our mind state in our ego state we have a tendency towards violence and dishonesty and thieving and all of that it it, it isn't an excuse for you to relax and do nothing you said relax not be lazy yeah. I like to be really clear on that oh no to be involved. To absolutely be involved. The Sufis have a meditation called the hesitation. At least I learned it from a Sufi master. And in this meditation, anytime you are finding yourself having a strong reaction, hesitate before you react. It requires some self-knowledge. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. But 
if we are finding ourselves in a reactive space, especially when there's strong emotional charge on it, think a deep breath, hesitate. Do not react. In a larger sense, people sometimes say, if you're angry, write a letter to the person you're angry with and then burn it. Don't mm-hmm. send that letter off. Right. Really hesitate. From a yogic standpoint, from a Sufi standpoint, it was hesitate and self-observe the entire circumstance of reaction. Then you can frame a response. So and and this what one I'm of the saying things. is the whole thing is like a meditative it's a meditative process to move from reaction to response. Well, and, and I don't say it exactly the same way, but one of the ways that I talk to my high schoolers, my teenagers, is you know when you when you stop and take a deep breath and think about how you're going to respond, it could save your life. And I don't necessarily mean that in a live or die way, although that could be true. But I also mean like, it, you know, if you're in your, your job after, you know, school, after you, you graduate, you know, having a, a just a reaction to your boss could be the end of your job. It can, I, it can be life or death, but more often than not, it can save you a lot of embarrassment. Oh, <laughs> that is the truth. That is the truth, well, uh, yes. Abraham but Lincoln to them, that is their life. <laughs> yeah, of course, identification. But That's right. <laughs> uh, Abraham Lincoln had a statement that I've, uh, I'm glad my mother gave me when I was a little boy. I haven't, unfortunately, always lived by it. But he said, it is better to be silent and appear a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. <laughs> and so this is another example of hesitation yeah. and responding rather than reacting. Yes. Yes. So listen, I want to have us take just a short break and then we'll come back and um I have just a couple more things I hope we could touch on before the end of the show. Um, So you'll join us after the break? I'll be here. Okay, we'll be right back. While cutting molding with a 12-inch dual compound miter saw, while holding a newborn baby in your arms, when face-to-face with a congregation of alligators, with the ball in your hands and the entire freaking season on the line... There are a million places you'd never consider texting. So why would you do it while driving? NASCAR driver Casey Kane here, asking you to please stop the text, and together we can stop the wrecks. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Get the message at stoptextstoprex.org. You're listening to Kimberly's Intentional Moment on blogtalkradio.com with your host, Kimberly Canals. Your spot to practice living in awareness. Thank you so much. Are you still there, Salvatore? I'm here. All right. So one of the things I just want to say about the no text and drive and why why I picked that um, public service announcement 
for this show is, again, if we are in the moment, if we are practicing ATA, then texting while driving doesn't make sense. And it's dangerous. Obviously, we want to keep people safe out there. And at the same time, if you are driving, stay driving. We'll keep you and other people safe. Um, so I wanted to come back to, so I think, let's, let's, how about we do this? How about we, I'm going to ask you, Salvatore, to, as simple as possible, maybe a sentence or two, describe the difference between robotic reaction and authentic response, just to kind of recap where, we, where we've already been in the show, and then I have another question for you. Will you do that for us? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Okay. One of those need a, you need a moment. Second, second I'd love that. Go ahead and hesitate. <laughs> well, on radio, dead space is not sort of a wonderful thing. Um, the robotic reaction is habitual based on conditioning and past experience. The authentic response is based on interacting with this moment and what is happening in this moment without the projection of past experience on it. That, that, I think that sums up what you have been talking about. Yes, thank you. So, when I, I just also want to touch on this. So one of the questions I had, and I think you answered this pretty darn well already, was how much do you think our reaction versus response or our robotic reaction versus authentic response is human versus cultural? And what I have heard in this is that, well, it's absolutely a human uh, a, a hu- it's human nature to a certain extent just because we are this ego or we, are, or we identify with being this ego and this mind. Therefore, it's only different culturally, but it's happening for human beings. Does that, does that sound like what you've been talking about? Well, I'm not sure, but let me, let me give you a response and see how it fits. Okay. We're biological organisms. Right. And all biological organisms, from single-celled amoeba right up to humans and dolphins and whales, are governed to some extent and to I'm going to say more more than not by what is called the biological imperative. Survive and reproduce. Yeah. If we look at the Yamas from the standpoint that Ahimsa is the first one and the other four are subsets of Ahimsa. So what we have is without harm. Obviously, the next one is truthfulness, 
if we're not honest, we're being harmful. The next one is a scam without theft. If we're stealing, we're harming. Mm-hmm. If we're not being responsible in our sexuality, then we're being harmful. Greed is inevitably harmful. So yes. basically, when you are getting ahimsa, you get the other four. They're subsets of ahimsa. Yeah. For the most part, and I don't mean this totally, but for the most part, people are in a constant state of fighting for their lives. Even when there's no threat. A great deal I agree of, with you. Yeah. A great deal of what we call himsa, this tendency to harm, again, I'm not saying all of it, but a great deal, is coming from defensive postures. Yes. Sometimes we make preemptive strikes. People who are in states of violence typically are fearful. There's an old saying from India, you can always tell the biggest coward he has the biggest sword. (laughs) So the issues of harm, and I'm oversimplifying, but I'm oversimplifying to make a point, are usually around issues of survive and reproduce. And I mean, two of the big ones there in the Yamas, Nitsa and Brahmacharya. Yeah. So, misunderstanding these life forces is creating a difficulty. So, I think in one of our earlier conversations, we talked about fight or flight. Yep. We, and we did today a little too. A little bit. The human organism, I'm going to suggest, was not evolved for the world that we have created. Say that one more time. Say that again. A human, presently, physically, and at deep mental level, has not yet evolved into the world that the humans have created. So I'll give you an example. I had a student who was on the edge of completely coming undone. She was a legal secretary, a good one, Okay. working with an abusive lawyer. So if he misplaced a file, he would blame her for it and yell at her and threaten her. At my point, we eventually got her out of there, but that was later. Right. During the time I was talking to her, she was dealing with a serious problem here because she's evolved to either hit him because he's attacking her or run away. Right. This is how she's evolved to deal with this, but this is a law office in the 20th century. 
it's not appropriate for her to hit her attorney. It's not appropriate for her to run away. So she just has to stay there and take it. We had to come up with some other means of helping her take her evolution in hand in order to deal with the world as it is. I might add that there's there's another freeze, the fight flight freeze. Right. Yeah, we've well, yeah, you have brought this up with me before, well, yeah. But not, not on the radio. It's not appropriate for her to curl up in a fetal position in the law office. Right. <laughs> so she basically is in a corner getting kicked with no way out of it. Yikes. Well, until she could get another job, I had to teach her to breathe and be present in this moment and to witness him and to witness this and to be able to step back from personalization and realize that not only can't she hit him, he can't hit her. Right. That she is not in a true fight or flight situation. Although, yes, so, you can understand by the story that, you know, I mean, we all can relate to that on some level, that you would feel absolutely fight or flight. 100%. Yes. So what was happening here was that all of her reactions were instinctual. Yep, yep. We had to bring all of her reactions into the conscious mind for her to become aware of how she was reacting so that she could then move into that space of watching what was happening. And instead of running out of the office in tears, from a centered space, was able to say, well, I'm sorry if I've misplaced that file. Let me look for it. And you keep your eyes open, too. So that she got out of her reaction because her father used to yell at her the same way. Right. So she found that she was not actually reacting to him. She was reacting to her father. Yeah. So you come back to that, what you were talking about earlier, conditioned response or conditioned, conditioned reaction. Response. Yes. Yeah. And 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 what I want to reiterate here, because I think it's so appropriate, is, again, you, when you were talking about how to practice this, to stop, I only added in the breath work because no, that's I think it's just... No, a good idea. Yeah. Stop breathe, and I mean breathe consciously. We don't just breathe. We breathe consciously. Witness. So that's what now she's able to, you know, in, in talking about your student that you were referring to, she can witness exactly what's going on, her her conditioned reaction, own it as hers or even his. That You know, he's he's having his own conditioned reaction. Either way, own it. And then you can have an opposing vibration or place now or interject, I guess, a, an opposing vibration, which, you know, I'm sorry I misplaced that or I'm sorry we can't find that. Let me see what I can find or let me see what I can do. Mm-hmm. Diffuses the situation almost completely, almost. I understand it's not gone. 
Or helpful. could, how and, about, could diffuse it. And she eventually got a different job, but things got much better. I bet they did. Because she was at that, all of these actions, when she brought this stuff that was happening below the level of day-to-day awareness, brought it up, and then was able to make conscious choices in her reaction, which was a response now. And now because it's and something that's key there, and, and I, I, I need to hear it myself, and so I'm, I'm positive there's listeners out there that would feel the same way, now you do have some control, which is ultimately that the mind just wants control. <laughs> and if she's able to stop, this is my practice, this is what I'm doing, and this is how I'm going to respond, that's very powerful. Oddly enough, if there's some paradox in this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, because on one hand, some of her initial anxiety was because she had lost control. Yeah. And by simply saying, gosh, maybe I did misplace that, oddly enough, by verbally acknowledging that as a possibility, she actually got some control back. That's right. But by trying to defend herself, she was losing control. Where if she just bought it and said, wow, really? And from what she said, three and a half out of four times, he had misplaced the file. Mm -hmm. He did this a lot. And eventually he came to see the pattern that he was losing the files and blaming her. Wow. It's nice when you can have that also happen. doesn't always. Well, you know, I and don't know that he ever apologized, but he's, you know, he was able to make a rueful acknowledgement that at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. And so, I and I don't know, you tell me, we have about, we could do another 20 minutes or so. And I, and I know this is a loaded question, and so we can come back to it if you'd like, but it's one that, you know, um, you and I talked before, and it, it's so appropriate because it has to do with ahimsa or without harm. You were a martial artist for a long time, correct? Pra- or practicing in the martial arts for a long time. Correct? It's never never stopped. Yeah. Okay, so you are a practicing martial artist. I don't go to dojos, but I'm a martial artist. Yes. How do the martial arts work with Ahimsa? Because I know that some listeners out there might be like, wait a second, martial arts in the name itself, and then you're saying without harm. What? Can, Can you explain or... Give give uh, give us some understanding of that. Sure, I've met your mother, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. Lovely lady. Thanks, I think so too. Me. Oh yeah, she's great. But <laughs> you're safer with me than you are with your mother. <laughs> okay, that's probably fair. She'd probably agree. <laughs> because not only will I not harm you, as your mother would, but I can effectively protect you from harm. And I will. And I have. Yes. 
That's true. When I was inducted into my particular tradition, I had to make three promises before I would be given my my uniform, my deed. And I said, okay, what are the three promises? And the Sifu said, I'm not going to tell you. You have to agree to these promises, and then I'll tell you what you promised. And I said, okay, believe me, by that time I'd gone through a lot to get there, so I wasn't going to back off now. I said, I agree. What have I agreed to? <laughs> he said, as of this moment, you promise that you will never use the deadly arts that you're about to learn here for self-aggrandizement or personal power. I said, I can reaffirm that promise. I just got the chills. That's, wow. He said, the second thing that you promised is that you, if you find the helpless person in need of aid, you will go to their help regardless of injury to you. And I said, I reaffirm that promise. He said, the third promise is that if the temple ever comes under attack and you are the first person to notice this, just become aware of it, that you'll be the first person to defend the temple. He said, you won't be alone for long. But your promise is that you'll be the first to defend the temple, regardless of threat of injury to you. He said, I reaffirm that promise. That is powerful. That is a very powerful introduction. Oh, yeah. And if I hadn't agreed to it, I would not have been allowed in. So that's certainly the beginning of the answer to how do the martial arts work with ahimsa or without harm. There's the nice, that's a nice beginning. Thank you. Well, it's not the whole thing, because there was an altar. I was in the inner temple, and he said, sometimes students make a special vow. If you have any in your mind or in your heart, this is a good time for it. And so he gave me the key, and I said, If there's to be violence in the world, when possible, let it come to me and let the innocent walk free. So through the years, this would be 1968, I have periodically dealt with unprovoked street attacks. In all but three cases, I have been able to diffuse the situation. The master hall of our tradition once told me 
The greatest expression of the warrior's art is the avoidance of violence in the first place. Well said. But there have been three instances where I was unable to avoid physical contact. And I've always resolved the situation with minimum force. It's called proportionate response. But at no point was there anger or desire to hurt. At no point was there harm. Can you explain that? What do you mean there was no harm if you actually had a physical altercation with someone? I'm not going to say they weren't hurt, but they weren't harmed. Harm is an attitude. Okay. For example, and, if somebody... Which is why we can say there's, there's you know, um, um, emotional harm, verbal harm versus just physical Let's take, for example, someone who takes has a very old dog and the dog is in pain and they take the dog to the veterinarian and the veterinarian gives this dog an overdose of anesthetic and the dog goes to sleep and leaves his body. This body has been killed. Has this dog been harmed? Uh... Well, I don't know. That's a that's a that's a very interesting question because I think I could hear somebody say, "But you harmed my dog because you overdosed." That would be. You, I'm talking about someone who takes the dog in specific to have the dog put to sleep. Oh, this is. I see what you're saying. They they took them in to. Euthanize, and then they, okay, I got it. I got it. Oh, right. Yes. You see, if it goes back to the Abhinavesha, if you identify life itself as identical with the physical body, then anything does not support that physical body's continuity can be seen as harm. But mm -hmm. if somebody has a, a dog that is like 115 years old in dog years mm -hmm. and in constant pain, we, my wife and I hospice our dogs, but there are people who put their dogs to sleep and they love them dearly. Yeah. The dog has been relieved of the burden of a physical body. But was the dog harmed? Harm, therefore, is an attack issue. Yeah. Yes. So a person who attacks me unprovoked wishes to harm me. So in I a sense, you're, you're helping to define the difference between harm and hurt, because we yes. can be hurt without harm. Yes. Yes. Uh, I got a real weird splitter between in my index finger in a joint. My wife 
had to use a scalpel and uh, a pair of tweezers to get it out. It hurt. Did she harm me? No. No, but it hurt. That's right. Now, the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita deals with this in a lot of detail. I consider the second chapter on the Bhagavad Gita, which covers a couple of different topics, okay? But one of the topics that it deals with is that it's a major discourse on the issues of Abhinavesha may not cease to be. So people who identify life itself with the physical body can come to regard any pain as harmful. So in the cases where I've had to physically respond, like I said, I've been minimal, and I have wished no harm on them. And I've done what I could to help them afterwards. Therefore, they may have been hurt. Your intention wasn't to harm. Your intention wasn't to... Your intention wasn't even really to hurt. Your intention was to stop a violent attack. I think you could make a case that my intent was educational. (laughs) That you what? Sorry. Uh, I said, I think you could make a case that my intent was educational. (laughs) Yeah, you could make that case. You really could. The first one was very difficult for me, and I went to one of the priests in the old temple. And when I told him what had happened, because this had been a real ambush that I had to deal with. And he was seriously injured. And I had huge remorse around him. And I went to see one of the mid-level priests, someone I had a personal relationship with. And he heard my story, and he thought, and he said, if this man had put his hand in a running lawnmower, would the lawnmower be responsible for his injury? Wow. He said, if this man had jumped off a cliff, would the cliff be responsible for his injury? I just got the chills again. So, yeah, because it, just such a visceral reaction. He said, for some reason, this man needed a lesson in view were the instrument of his education. <laughs> and the only reason I giggle is that I, I, I can understand how this could be hard for people to hear as education. And if you really just stop for a moment, think it through, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, for instance, some people think it's catastrophic when they get an F in a class, when they fail the class. However, if the teacher, or when the teacher, is able to 
uh, educate them, teach them through that. Understand what the failure means. You gave it, you gave it a try. This didn't work. Here's why. Essentially, it's not that different. It feels different because we hear of physical hurt in it. Well, well, it was different than but, an F class. I will, I will assure you. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> um, but do you hear what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Life is full of corrective circumstances. Yeah. But what we're dealing with here is very, very hard. Uh, we're not putting our F students in the hospital. Right. But what the Doshar was saying was that this man has probably assaulted innocent people in the past. And it was time for him to stop. And he said, Yes, oh, it you was. We're an instrument of his karma. And what you have done for him is a service. And then he gave me a blessing from the lineage, blessing me for the action that I had taken in the protection of the innocent. Yeah. And this went back to my vow. If there's to be violence in the world when possible, let it come to me, let the innocent walk free. Yeah. And and I want to be clear, I wasn't I, I, I wasn't taking away from the um I guess the extreme nature of what went down in your situation. What I didn't want to make light of the education piece of it because that well, is profound I, and it is real. Well, and when I was teaching yoga and stress management at Boise State, mm-hmm. every year I did a repeating experiment around um, midterm ex- the midterm exams. It was a semester system. And every year I'd, I'd say, now it's time to talk about stress. Who here is feeling any kind of stress? And so one of the students, you know, a lot of the students would raise their hands, and I would get into a dialogue with with one of them about the concern. Uh, one young woman was gave me the archetypal Socratic dialogue. And I said, so what are you stressed about? She said, my midterms. Okay, what are you stressed about? And she said, well, I'm afraid that I I might actually fail. I said, I doubt if that will happen. Are you preparing? She said, yes. I said, okay. But let's deal with your fear. So what are you afraid will happen? Well, I'm afraid that I'll fail. Then what? Well, then, you know, I might fail the entire class. Okay, I'll hunt that. Well, if I failed this class, then I might be kicked out of school. And she said, that's not likely to happen. I said, no, but let's deal with your fears. She said, well, if I get kicked out of school, then uh, what I'm afraid is that then I won't be able to get work and I'll be in poverty. I said, and then she said, if I'm in poverty, then no one's going to want to date me or have me for a sexual partner. And that got a big laugh. Then... Um, right. We went on with that dialogue, and the end of it was 
that she had a vision of her dead body lying in a gutter on a rainy night with people driving by, splashing water on it with her arm outreach trying to get a bottle of any Green Springs wine. And I said, <laughs> wow. you have a, I said, do you have a drinking problem? And she said, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> So what she did was reveal the deep internal fantasy. And when she had done with that, she said, I feel much better now. <laughs> I can, I actually really get that. Oh, yeah. I think and many of us can. It's like, class. wow, how revealing is that? Everybody in the class totally got it. It was amazing the degree of nods. Oh, she included that she thought her family would disown her. I said, is that likely to happen? She said, no. She said, but that's my fear. Right. And it was amazing, like I said, the number of students who followed her right through to the end. We have <laughs> huge survival issues in a world that is really pretty supportive. I mean, it's not every, not this entire world. When I say world in this sense, I'm talking about uh, being a university student in Idaho, uh, that's a pretty right. supportive world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I knew that, but I'm glad you clarified that, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's parts of the world that aren't very supportive right now. But uh, yeah. she, all of her concerns were totally fantasy, but all of those fantasies were affecting her body chemistry. Oh, yes. Okay, We've had much, thinking, much talk about that on this show. We can over that, and you can probably find someone who's maybe better at talking about brain chemistry than I am. But her body was being flooded with various anxiety chemistries, and she was having huge adrenaline reactions. She was getting sugar spikes. Mm-hmm. All of that. And it comes yeah. back to survive and reproduce. She was well, and that, totally afraid and that's, that that's what I meant. If she failed one of her classes, that she was going to die in sexless poverty. <laughs> and the thing is, is the only reason I giggle is that I, I just find us to be so interesting. Oh my God! Uh, we are such an interesting species that you know that this is where we go. And I relate to her hundred percent. I do my own drama in my mind. You, the avenues I go down, and much of many of them you know of. It, it, and it, it starts, you know, with the failure of a test, and then boom, all of a sudden, we're almost dead. It's never happened to me, but it sounds awful. <laughs> it's it's not fun. It's not uh, fun. I have to tell you, I, I am so grateful for you um, spending so much time with us on the show because this is such, it's such a helpful addition to the practice. You know, whether... Listeners decide to actually study yoga in terms of the Yoga Sutra or not. Being in the practice of peace, love, um, or, or let's just be even uh, more, let's simplify it even more, robotic reaction versus authentic response. So the practice of authentic response other than when we need a reaction, and I didn't use robotic purposely there, because there's times where we need reaction. But when we are practicing the authentic response, we 
ultimately, you said it earlier, make life easier. We live easier. It seems like that is out of our reach, and it is not. We tend to make our own complexity. Yeah. That, that is the truth. I mean, it's part of being human. It's got to be interesting, and this will be funny for some of my listeners, and you know this between my boyfriend and I talking about um, aliens, you know, what an awful waste of space if there aren't other beings out there. The aliens must get a chuckle at us now and again. <laughs> In a future talk, let's, let's talk about uh, Santosha, contentment. Okay. That sounds like a great idea. And actually, it is time for us to end the show. So this is actually, so Santosha, I'm writing it down. And, uh, and I, 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 I can't wait. We're going to have so much fun. And maybe on that show, we can have our, our first show together where we have people call in. You open to that? Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Great fun. I think that would be really fun. And just thank you so much for your time and the the um, sharing of your experiences and your education in the world. Uh, I know it really helps me, and, and I, I can't imagine it isn't helping someone else. And uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks so much. You too. Don't All right. All right. And for you listeners out there, have a wonderful week. We will see, or we will talk next week, and we'll be live again. So have um, the practice of peace in mind. Breathe. Or let's go to the practice. Stop. Witness. Own it. And then the... Opposing vibration. Bye bye.